Are you open to the possibility of God changing your life? Open the Gospel of John and just read it and ask yourself, who is this person, Jesus? Why do the stories he told and the life he lived turn the world upside down more than anybody who's ever lived? That's the question, but be careful. That's a dangerous thing to do because Jesus just might change our life too. Do the events recorded in the Bible actually happen? Are the people mentioned in scripture historically real? Is there any way to know if Jesus of Nazareth genuinely rose from the grave? In other words, can I trust the Bible? Well, there isn't a person on the planet better equipped to answer these tough questions than my brother, Dr. Sean McDowell. Right now, we are finding out Sean's top seven reasons he believes Christianity is true. So let's get after it. Sean, my man, thanks for coming on. Raj is a treat, man. Love the show and honored to be on with you. Well, Sean, uh, I'm assuming a lot of people know who you are, but if they don't, how did you get into apologetics? And I guess if this is someone's absolute first time with apologetics, what is apologetics? Great questions. Let's start with the latter one. Apologetics has nothing to do with saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I teach at Biola University in a master's program in apologetics. We've actually had years ago people call up not happy that we offer courses on teaching Christians to say they're sorry for their <laughs> beliefs. That's not what apologetics is. First Peter 3.15, Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready with an answer. Give it with gentleness and respect. Well, answer or reason in the English comes from the Greek apologia, hence apologetics. It's not a unique Christian term. You can, there are Muslim apologists. There are atheist apologists. There are apologists for particular uh, political candidates. So it's someone who makes a case for something, but uniquely as Christians, we're called to use our mind and do offense, which is not offending people, but giving positive reasons, and defense, responding to critiques of the Christian faith. So that's what apologetics is. Now, my story, briefly, my father is, has been probably one of the more influential apologists for the past half century. Some of your viewers might recognize the name Josh McDowell. Mm -hmm. He actually sat out as a skeptic to disprove Christianity. We're talking back in the 50s. There was no apologetics movement. There certainly was no social media or YouTube or any other platform. There were really no books. So he traveled around the world at that time to find the research to prove that Christianity was false. Was surprised by the evidence for the Bible, became a Christian, and it changed his life. Well, we'll get to some of that more later. But growing up with a dad who's passionate about this, he never told me, hey, you should be an apologist. I don't ever remember that. But he modeled it, he lived it, taught me how to think. So as I grew up, I just realized, well, I've got this passion. I've got this interest. Now, there was a quick season where I had, in college, I had real doubts about what I believed. This is like mid-90s. So some of the atheist secular web, a lot of it began responding to my dad's book chapter by chapter. And I first came across that. And these are doctors, historians, philosophers. It really unsettled me. I thought, holy cow, I know my parents mean well, but what if I'm wrong? And so a lot of what I do in apologetics is just answering questions I've asked myself, and I'm trying to help other people answer these kinds of questions. So with a dad who modeled it, my own journey, and just thought about what's my giftings and my love, there was nothing else I would rather do than do apologetics. 
So we're gonna get into the countdown in just a second, but you you said something that I want to touch on. Is it okay to have doubts? Yes, it is okay. So doubt is not the opposite of belief. You can believe something and have doubts. The opposite of belief is unbelief. So belief does not require certainty. There's a lot of things that I believe and I know that I'm not certain about. So the Bible says, have mercy on those who doubt. Even in the Great Commission, people who saw Jesus risen, it says they believed, but they doubted. Hmm. So some people have the gift of faith. That's not me. I doubt a lot of things, but that drives me to research. That drives me to seek understanding. And so doubt can be painful. At times it's been painful in my life, but God has used that pain and that kind of skeptical spirit to seek out answers to hopefully help other people. So especially in our age of endless information, people are going to have questions. They're going to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. Really what matters is what we do Mm. with those questions. So let's get into the top seven, and we're going to go okay. from seven to one. Okay. So one being the, the most compelling argument. So obviously right. say, stay to the end. So number seven you have as fine-tuning. What does that mean? So one of the remarkable things that scientists have discovered over the past few decades, going into the middle towards the end of the 20th century, is that there are certain laws in physics and cosmology that exist in a very narrow range. And the slightest change to the left or the right, and the entire universe becomes inhospitable to life. So think about like maybe an old radio dial. You'd have to dial it so it's just right to get the signal. Laws of, say, gravity or the cosmological constant exist on this narrow range. Some would say that it's like a razor's edge, but that edge is so fine we could never have a razor that captures it. Well, Frederick Hoyle, an agnostic astronomer, he said it almost seems as if someone's been monkeying with Mm. physics. Now, monkeying implies a mind, and it implies intelligence. And so this was a surprise, but of course, if you believe in God, and you believe there's a cosmic fine-tuner, we're not surprised by this at all. It actually makes perfect sense. So not a perfect example. You think about just the expansion rate of the universe. The mass of the universe has to be within a very narrow range. If it's more, given the laws, what happens? It's going to crunch in in itself. If it's less, it's going to expand so quickly that it won't settle into stars and planets and solar systems capable of supporting life. Now, we could get into the math. I won't get lost there. But essentially, there's so many, there's at least 30, probably many more of these parameters that must each be fine-tuned. So like gravity, 1 times 10 with 40 zeros after it. Infinite, basically. Uh, Then that's one of them. Cosmological constant, 1 times 10 with 53 zeros after it. We start to add these together, and the number gets so big Mm. that some scientists would say there's not even enough, like, protons or atoms in the universe to like write this number down on it's so vast so the fine tuning in the universe to me is best explained it can't be explained by chance it's not going to be explained by some law that requires they're fine-tuned i think it's best explained as a fine tuner and interestingly enough i sent out a tweet recently asking people who believe in god what they consider one of the most compelling arguments and a lot of christians said Mm fine-tuning 
And even some atheists, like the former Christopher Hitchens, said there's something about fine-tuning that gives me pause. I was just about to say that. You look at uh, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, a lot of these famous atheists. I feel like if you look, if you go online, the argument that almost kind of scares their atheism is this fine-tuning. And sometimes, certain atheists will say that. I would just say these are huge debates, and people will give responses to it, of course. But I don't think any of those responses can actually explain why the universe exists within the narrow range that it does. Hmm. It's not chance. There's not some law that requires it. Well, the laws of physics and cosmology within a narrow range, I think that's best explained by pointing towards a fine tuner. It's like the Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. When I saw those uh, James Webb photos of the the latest telescope Mm. of the universe, I'm like, come on, this is just, I mean, God's creation is, how can you not, well, that's a different subject for a different day, but the fine tuning argument, it's, to me, it's like, that's where you almost begin with most folks. But going to number six, you said DNA. Why DNA? Okay, so, Fine-tuning deals with the macro level of the universe itself. DNA is now down into the micro. So there's a lot of things in the universe that I think like Psalms 19, 1 and 2 says point towards a mind. But now when we're in the small, what is DNA? What is it? Well, 1953, when DNA was discovered, we really realized that at the core of biology and life is basically a genetic code. Hmm. It's a genetic code. Well, there are trillions of cells within the human body. And if you took the DNA out of one cell, it would uncoil an estimate of nine meters in length. Now, one scientist I asked this week said to me that he believes if you take all the DNA in your body alone and line it up together, it would go from here to the sun and back about 200 times. Now, NASA scientists in the past said 70. The latest I've heard is maybe 200. Even if it's halfway to the sun, whatever, that's incredible. So there's something on the level of DNA that's powerful. Now, I, w- I was researching a, an expert in nanotechnology, and I said, you guys ever look at things like DNA to learn how to make better technology on the micro level? And he was like, absolutely we do because Mm. it's storage capacity and sophistication and it's like a genetic code and technology, but more sophisticated than anything humans can create. Well, if the heart of it is information, this raises an interesting question. What's the source of information? Well, anytime we have information and we trace it back to a source, we find a, a mind. If it's a book, we find an author. If it's a blog, we find a blogger. If it's a text and it's legible, we find a texter. If it says drink Coke, you know, in the in the clouds, nobody thinks, oh, that's a sign that a storm's coming from the east. You know a pilot or a mind went through and wrote that. Well, we look in the DNA in the human body and we find information so sophisticated. The best explanation is there is an information giver, Hmm. a mind behind it. By the way, even Anthony Flew, one of the leading atheists for 50 years, switched his mind about a decade ago and wrote a book called There Is a God. Wow. He said there was something within DNA as science developed in his career from like the mid mid part of the 20th century and early 2000s that points beyond itself to an intelligence. So the fine-tuning points towards a fine-tuner. I think DNA is best explained by an information giver, an author of life. That is fascinating. Okay, number five, you said morality. Yes. Why? So 
everybody agrees that you talk to that there's right and there's wrong. The question is, where does this come from and what's the best source of right and wrong? The moment somebody says to you, I don't believe in right and wrong, C.S. Lewis famously said in Mere Christianity, you will find that person going back on their word. So I tell, I tell my students all the time, I say, look, if someone says to you there's no such thing as right and wrong, cut in front of them in line. What are they going to say? That's not right, mm-hmm. as if there's a standard of right and wrong. Now, atheists can know morality. They can be moral because they're made in the image of God and live in the world that God has created. Everybody recognizes that there is right and wrong. The question is, what's the best source for their being right and for their being wrong. And we could walk through all the different sources that I think fall short. For example, evolution can't explain the origin of right and wrong. Even C.S. Lewis said years ago, he said evolution could give us instincts that we should do A and not B. But to make a distinction, when I have competing instincts, you have to have something by which you judge those instincts. Hmm. It has to be apart from instinct itself Therefore, evolution couldn't in principle explain objective right and wrong. But if there really are moral values and there really are moral duties, Hmm. that seems to point towards an objective moral law. Hmm. And I don't know how you have an objective moral law if there's not an objective moral law giver. Even Hmm. Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, all is permissible. Hmm. I think he's right. But we know all is not permissible. Therefore, in the converse, the best explanation is there's a moral law, hence a moral lawgiver. So how would atheists push back against that? Well, atheists have one of two options. Either they can say there is no objective moral law. And I actually, I had a debate with a friend of mine who's an atheist. In his book, he wrote that morality is subjective. So I just went straight for the jugular. And I said, if that's true, you cannot condemn the Holocaust. Mm. And of course, he's like, wow. well, that's not what I'm saying. I said, if morality is subjective, mm. you can't condemn it. Now, I think most atheists will say morality is objective, but they're going to have to ground it somewhere apart from God. So maybe these are platonic truths that just exist. They're going to point to some other explanation. But I just don't know how you get there. Like, how do you get human value, mm-hmm. intrinsic value? The idea that I Come have on. a duty to you Come on. is different than a duty to a rock. Mm-hmm. If you're made in God's image, then you have value. It doesn't matter your skin color, your sex, your age, your vocation, etc. You have intrinsic value. If there's no God, you're the result of some blind, purposeless, material process. Mm-hmm. So... Atheists have many attempts at this. You can get online and enter into, and I've had debates and discussions on this stuff. So there's answers that atheists and skeptics and naturalists will put forward. Mm. But I don't think you can get human value. I don't think you can get free will. I don't think think you can get an objective moral law Mm. if there's not a moral lawgiver. It's interesting interesting that you said the Holocaust because I was uh, actually in Auschwitz with an Auschwitz survivor. His name is Irving Roth. And he said... You know, it's not educate lack of education that precipitated the Holocaust. In fact, you can make the argument that education precipitated the Holocaust. Mm. He said, how we prevent this is education with a moral compass. Mm. And that, that's always stuck out to me is if, if the people that you're demonizing have no intrinsic value, nothing greater than them, then 
who's to say you're right and who's to say you're wrong? I mean, what did the Nazis have to do? They had to dehumanize exactly. the Jews. Exactly. Vermin and rats. Because what do we do? We exterminate them. Mm-hmm. We had to make them less than human because mm-hmm. we know humans have value and are different. Mm. It reminds me of that quote from Lecrae in one of his songs. He says, if there's no such thing as truth, then why should I believe you? It's a great. <laughs> I love it. All right. So number four, you said beauty. Mm. Explain. Okay. So think about this. Fine tuning in DNA gets us to a mind. The moral argument tells us it's not just a cosmic mind. This is a mind that cares about right and wrong and goodness. Beauty tells us. Now, this isn't just a mind that cares about right and wrong. It's one that cares about beauty. So what explains beauty in the world? Now, right away when we start talking about this, everybody thinks, well, beauty is in the eye Mm -hmm. of the beholder. We all think it's subjective. I'm going to say something provocative, and your viewers might not be persuaded, but at least think about it later. Are you ready? Let's do it. If you don't think a rose is beautiful, you are just as wrong as if you think two plus two equals five. Mm. Wow. You are just as wrong as if you think George Washington was the 10th president of the United (laughs) States. People go, well, that's just your opinion. How can you say that? I say, well, let's take a step back. Classically throughout Western culture, there was goodness, truth, and beauty. And these are things we discover in the world and conform our lives to. Objective morality, objective truth, and objective beauty. So let's at least just reflect upon how we use beauty. So when somebody looks at a sunset, what do we say? We say, wow, that is beautiful. That is the object. Now, people say, well, what about those who disagree over what's beautiful? I Mm. say nothing falls from disagreement. If somebody disagrees over where the Holocaust happened to bring that back, there's Holocaust deniers online. That doesn't mean there's no truth. Mm. There's people who differ over scientific facts. Doesn't mean there's no truth. People differ over what is beautiful. Doesn't mean there's no truth. The reason I think we differ is because our culture and our world has been infected with ugliness. And by ugliness, I mean things like pornography that twist and corrupt the beauty of sex, the beauty of the human body, and they corrupt our ability to see and recognize beauty as it is. So last thing I'll say is I think it's it, it the evolutionary explanation is, well, beauty has some advantage like a peacock's tail, you know, wins over the mate more, you know, et cetera. Like you can, you can in principle explain certain things, but why do we find beauty in the depths of the ocean? Hmm. Why do we find it in the far reaches of the galaxy that have nothing to do, nothing to do with evolution or survival? It sure seems to me to the honest observer that there is beauty built into the world itself. So, I think beauty in the world is best explained as there being a divine artist. To go to number three, you said the deity of Jesus. Why that? Okay, so think about it this way. If there's a God who made the world in the way we've been talking about, the question I want to ask is, has this God made himself known? So on certain paintings, people sign it. Why? Because they've made something beautiful and they deserve recognition for it. That's their stamp. If God has made this world, has this God spoken? Well, what's unique about the Christian religion amongst major religions 
is Jesus didn't claim to be a way or a life or a truth or tell us how to get to God. Mm. Jesus claimed to be, of all the major world religions, God in human flesh. Buddha didn't make that claim. Mm. Muhammad certainly didn't make that claim. Jesus claimed to be Yahweh Hmm. in human flesh. Now, we can walk through the different passages in Scripture in which Jesus did this. I think it's in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of John, it's most explicit, where he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Mm -hmm. And at the end of John, in John 20, Thomas is like, my Lord and my God, when he sees Jesus. Now, he wasn't saying, oh, my God. He was saying, my Lord and my God, speaking to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because it brings full circle from John 1, 1 that says, in the beginning uh, was the word who was God and was with God. So scriptures make it clear. Paul comes along, also makes it clear. Uh, you see it in Acts, making it clear. This teaching and understanding that Jesus is God in human flesh. And other things he did to support this is Jesus did miracles. You say, well, Elijah did miracles. Moses did miracles. Jesus did miracles in his own authority, mm. not by somebody else's authority. Jesus forgave sins in Mark chapter 2 that were committed against God because he had divine authority. People worshipped him. Now you see in Acts and you see in Revelation, people worshiping angels. And the angel's like, stop, don't worship me. At the end of Revelation, the entire Bible comes to full climax. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, the first and the last. If a skeptic's watching this and are not convinced is, who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. Mm. You can't just call him a prophet. You can't just say he's a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. So either he's God or he's not. Either we believe it or we don't. All right, Sean, before we continue on with your countdown, to me, my favorite thing is archaeology. Now, as you know, mm-hmm. you came to Israel with me and, yeah. you know, for years that was my, my job was basically taking Christians to Israel. And you know, I think it's easy for Christians to um, mystify the Bible, you know, where the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem might as well be Hogwarts, Narnia, and, mm. you know, Middle Earth. But once you actually go there, it's it's as real as Cleveland or it's as real as Orange County where we are here. It's as real as as you and to me one of the most amazing things about going to israel is you see that your faith is rooted in scientific fact archaeologically speaking and just showing that to people it almost mm. is like this light bulb go off where it's like i don't have to disneyify my faith it's it's mm. the, the the bible is a historic reality you know it's almost like if you want to be if you want to have a good map to go do archaeology in the promised land you just take the bible and to me i I think there's so many prophetic things happening it's almost like every single time you know the world says ah god's not real god's dead no it's all garbage god's like oh really okay archaeologists dig dig right there Mm. and it's Mm. almost like the more that they oh this didn't happen the more it's like god's like okay fine here more evidence you know, the city of David, it's like every three seconds, the city of David is the uh, ancient biblical Jerusalem because yep. the old city of yep. Jerusalem actually has moved around because it's, that's a whole other story. But the ancient biblical Jerusalem is called the city of David. And you go there and it's like, yeah, we found this thing 
last minute, you know, two days ago that says Hezekiah, king of Judah, son of Ahaz. It's like it's amazing. So there was a there was a King Hezekiah or the Dead Sea Scrolls, man. I could go on. This mm. this archaeological stuff gets me jacked. I can see it. By the way, archaeology was my second favorite thing of going to Israel. First one, I'm not gonna lie, was the food. Yeah. The archaeology, man, on top of that. What's cool is we have nothing to be afraid of Come on. by the archaeology. Let's invite it. We know where Jesus walked. We know where he was born. Mm -hmm. We know where he ministered. And like you said, we're finding inscriptions. We're finding coins. Now, there's a lot of things, as you obviously know, we haven't found yet. There's politics and there's a process and there's a right. lot of things at play, the, the digging that's there. But to go and see alive that this isn't some fantasy land. Yeah. This isn't some story from a time far away, you know, in a galaxy far, yeah. far away or once upon a time. This is a real place and real people. And you can see the Bible come alive. Yep. It's game changing. It's almost it's almost uh, disconcerting to people where it's, it's easier to keep it at hand's distance, arm's distance. It's, hmm. it's easier to believe with a 30,000 foot perspective. But then you take someone to the southern steps and the 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 pavement uh, going from the southern steps into the temple mm. where Jesus would have entered the temple. The There's a lot of recreated stairs, but the actual stair underneath the would-be gate, the gate's closed off now. Today it's the mosque, right. the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But that, that original one, well, it's like, like two or three pavers into the temple where Jesus would have walked is original. It's still there. Mm. So you can take, you know, your your homie who's a pastor in Boston or your buddy who's a musician, a Christian musician in Portland and be like, hey, you see that stone? Mm. Almost certainly Jesus touched it. It takes it from this ethereal mm. mist to no, no, he was he, right here. So the number two uh, most compelling argument that you gave. We're actually going to do an entire episode about. Yep. So if you're watching this, we, you know, it'll be on our YouTube channel. Uh, but number two, you said the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Why that? Well, first off, all of Christianity rests upon whether Jesus has risen or not. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus is not risen. Our faith is in vain. So if Jesus did not rise, you and I are false prophets. We're still in our sins and we should be pitied. Mm. Jesus did rise, Romans 1, 3, and 4. That means he is the son of God, and it's the ultimate miracle showing the nature of his identity. So literally everything rests upon the resurrection. What's interesting, though, is we know Jesus lived. There's minimal doubt about that. We have really good reason Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. There's no other contrary accounts. We know the name and profession of somebody, a part of the Sanhedrin, and they wouldn't likely invent a hero from the very group that condemned him to death. Mm. We have good reason to believe the tomb is empty. I'm aware of at least 21 arguments for this, some stronger than others, and we can get into that. Then we have all these people claiming that they had seen the risen Jesus. You have the apostles. You have the account of the 500. You have James, a brother of Jesus, who didn't believe during his lifetime. You have the story of Paul. What's amazing is the vast majority of scholars will concede that the apostles had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus. And then it transforms their worldview. Somehow they think that this person who was crucified in dishonor and shame in an honor-shame culture is God in human flesh. Mm. And they boldly start proclaiming this, putting their lives at risk because of it. Man, that, that's the beginning of a solid case. 
there's no other explanation that can account for all the facts that we have. There's none. But I think many people resist it because either we just think miracles can't happen Mm. or how much is at stake if Jesus really is the risen Savior of the world. Wow. All right, so before we get to number one, please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the notification bell. But speaking of YouTube, man, my brother, I have to say your YouTube channel is Brilliant. So how can people find you? Well, thanks for saying that. Good weaving in. Hit the subscribe button. You know, I'm just learning from the best, man. That's you. That's you. (laughs) I seriously watch your channel all the time, man. Do you really? Oh, it's amazing. Thanks for saying that. Uh, I guess just search my name on YouTube. I think it's Sean McDowell or Dr. Sean McDowell. It'll come up. And there's lots of videos on the very same stuff. You know, I have the same heartbeat for the scriptures and the Christian faith. So... Thanks. I can't advertise you enough, man, Sean. You're just, you're an inspiration to me. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. You, you, oh my you The way you're able to articulate such heady intellectual mm. uh, ideas is, is fascinating. God has really gifted you with that, my man. Well, I, I appreciate that. That, mean, that means a ton. All right. So the last one, number one, yeah. lives transformed by yep. Jesus. So here's the reality. This isn't really an argument. But I think it's true, and I think it's a testimony. I think of in John chapter 9, the blind man, who healed you? And finally he just goes, all I know is I was blind, Hmm. but now I see. I started this by sharing the story of my dad. There's some details I didn't share. He grew up with an alcoholic father in a small town, and the shame of having an alcoholic father from his earliest ages. My dad's older sister took her own life committed suicide. My dad was severely sexually abused by someone who lived on their farm. He was born in 39. So this is the 40s. Nobody talked about this in the 80s or 90s, let alone the 40s. Tried to tell people they wouldn't believe him. He was told by his family, by his dad, like you weren't wanted, you're basically an accident. Mm. We were sitting around as a family, Raj, maybe a number of years ago, and my mom was sharing funny stories growing up, and I said, I said, hey, Dad, or no, my sister said this. She goes, hey, Dad, share a funny story, a good memory of you have when you were a kid growing up. Awkward pause. I'll never forget it. He goes, kids, I don't have one. I mean, can you imagine that? I thought, really, does a day go by? I don't have at least one good memory. It was pain, and it was hurt. He would get in trouble at school to be kept after school, and everybody thought he was a troublemaker because he didn't want to be brought home and taken advantage of by this man who lived on their farm. I'm thinking about the pain there. By all records, my dad should be dead, and he should be in prison a long time ago. He was challenged by some students to consider the claims of Christ. Thought it was a joke. Had a full scholarship to law school. Saved up money from painting business. Went around to gather the information and prove Christianity was false. Was surprised by the evidence for it. That's not what drew him. It was the understanding of the love of God that drew him. And he became a believer. And a pastor, once he became a Christian, started mentoring him through the scriptures. And My dad was to the point where he could forgive his father for what he did and saw my grandfather come to Christ before he died. Even the man who sexually abused him said, I'm willing to forgive you. I offer it to you. What you did was evil, but I offer you forgiveness. Even in my lifetime, I've seen my dad's life transformed. Now, I don't have nearly the same kind of dramatic background that he has. But even in my own life, he said earlier, just thinking about the character of God getting teary-eyed, 
And I grew up the opposite of the prodigal son, grew up as the older brother. I did everything right. Everybody patted me in the back. I won the Bible award. I was smart. Inside, I didn't do the big sins. So I thought I was better than everybody else. And God just humbled me in college and broke me in many ways. And I just started to realize, oh my gosh, I too am a sinner and I need God's grace. So Jesus is alive and he transforms lives. And I have seen it. My father's life, I've experienced it my own. Throughout history, I think the testimony of the gospel is that Jesus changes lives. It's not an argument, but anybody watching this, I would invite them. I'd say, are you open to the possibility of God changing your life? Open the gospel of John and just read it and ask yourself, who is this person, Jesus? Why is this person whose story that was probably public two to three years, didn't even write any books? Why do the stories he told and the life he lived turn the world upside down more than anybody who's ever lived? That's the question, but be careful. That's a dangerous thing to do because Jesus just might change our life too. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, first of all. And mm. uh, I am just overwhelmed. Um, and I, I didn't ask you this beforehand, um, but if you would, would you mind closing this out with just prayer? Because I feel the presence of God here. Mm. And I don't know, I, I feel like that's, that's what we're supposed to do. I'd be happy to do it. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you love us. Thanks that you do care about every single one of us and that you have made yourself known. I pray if people are watching, move in their hearts, move in their minds, and just make yourself real to them through the scriptures. I pray your hand on Raj and on the show that you bring the right guests and you direct him and just use this program for your good. Father, we bless those who are watching. And uh, thank you for this opportunity and praise in your name. Amen. I love you, my brother. Thank you. Love you too. Thanks for having me on.